Hello and welcome to Tip of the Iceberg podcast. I'm Ashley Nichol with the Packer and PMG, and today we bring you a conversation with Bill Bishop, Chief Architect of retail consulting firm Brick Meets Click. He is going to talk about Instagram's new deal with Fabric that allows Instacart to expand its e-commerce offerings to include micro-fulfillment centers. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and Bill always has excellent insight, so sit back and enjoy, and here's my conversation with Bill Bishop. Hi, I'm Ashley Nickel with the Packer and PMG. We have with us today Bill Bishop. He's the chief architect of retail consulting firm Brick Meets Click, specializing, of course, in uh, the convergence of digital and physical retail, which has been in the news like none other here, of course, these last 18 months. Bill, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, of course, I I thought of giving you a shout when we saw the news today about Instacart partnering up with Fabric, which has been building micro-fulfillment centers uh, here in the U.S. I I believe they're headquartered in Tel Aviv, if I remember correctly, and so they've done work over there as well. Um, And basically, it sounds like how Instacart is positioning this is, you know, hey, now we have a partner to automate some of the fulfillment of orders that you know, previously we've had, you know, individual workers doing that selection in the store. Now they're trying to give people an option, at least give their retail partners an option to move that operation out of the stores and into kind of these, these small fulfillment centers. What, what was your reaction when you saw the news? Well, this has been rumored now for the last 30 to 45 days. So what, it didn't come as a complete surprise. What, did surprise me was that they talked about the partnership or alliance with Fabric, but no retailer was named. So that makes me a little curious as to what the situation is there, because I I do think moving in this direction for a retailer is tricky. Um, It's one of these things where it'll be right for some retailers, but not right for others. And there's been speculation about who this might involve. I'd rather not share that because it's kind of hearsay. Uh, But it's some big players who could conceivably go this way. But it didn't surprise me, mainly because I think that the pressure is increasing on Instacart to come up with other ways to add value. And this certainly is one of them. I thought it was interesting how... uh in the news release, one of the things, uh, kind of how they position it, they said, oh, you know, some of the things that um, make it difficult for Instacart shoppers, like crowded aisles and out of stocks and those kind of things, I thought, hmm, other people might say that is things that make it difficult for the standard shoppers in stores where there's been a big Instacart presence, right? So it, you know, they're positioning it in, in the one way, which also makes sense, but, you know, it probably is something that my guess is some of their retail partners have probably said, hey, you know, we want to have this service, but we can't have everybody in our stores all the time willy-nilly. Well, I I think you're listening very, very well to uh, what's being said. Um, Most of the time when an announcement like this comes out, uh, the emphasis on how it's going to help their customers uh, or anyone's customers as against going to help themselves. And that was... Uh, a phrasing that really talked more about helping themselves. I don't blame them for it, but I'm not sure it's the 
best uh, foot to put forward in the situation. Well, and we we talked a little bit uh, before we we jumped on the call here about, uh, and, and this has been floated probably for my goodness, probably a few years at least, right? Um, people thinking about okay, you know, as, as Instacart continues to build its business, um, in the release it says they're working with more than six hundred retailers. They they have folks shopping, and I think it was about. Did they say 55,000 different stores across 5,500 cities? I mean, it's a crazy reach. So you think about the data they have, you think about the infrastructure they've built, uh, you know, kind of the, the big question and, and total speculation, of course, um, but by people who observe the industry sometimes is, okay, you know, is Instacart at some point, you know, going to cut out, cut out the middleman and the retailer and, and have these direct relationships with uh, with consumers. Um, what's what's your thought on what we might see? You know, maybe not even in the next three to five years, but in the next ten years on this. Well, it's it's certainly a possibility, but I, I think uh, on whatever roadmap Instacart might have, this one's down the road a bit, um, mainly because it would put them in direct competition with the vast majority of their customers who are the retailers. Now, uh, what would move them in this direction, which we certainly hear, is that uh, many retailers, or at least some retailers, would like to reduce their dependency on Instacart because some of the restrictions that come along with that uh, contract with Instacart uh, sort of ties one hand, at least in some retailers' minds, behind their back. So we are feeling a hesitancy on the part of retailers to more thoroughly embrace, embrace Instacart. Um, and they've got to know that's happening. You know, what I can see is that, uh, that retail, that Instacart has been very effective at negotiating arrangements with grocers. Um, a lot of the arrangements that they have negotiated are to have significant advantage to Instacart and some significant disadvantage to the grocer, but the grocer doesn't see that until they're into the relationship. So when they look at the contract, it's a little hard to spot those things with no experience. Once they're into the contract though, I think some of those limitations become evident and we can see people sort of checking their watches and waiting now for the expiration of the contract so they can negotiate something a little bit more aggressive and beneficial to them. So there's kind of a shaking of the foundation in the relationship between grocers and, uh, and Instacart that I, I think could eventually lead Instacart to have to do a major pivot. But for the time being, uh, I don't think it would be wise, nor would I expect them to go into direct competition with most of their customers, which it kind of depends on what this configuration looks like. And I can say more about that, but I, I just think it's so difficult to run the risk of, uh, of starting a competitive feeling with somebody who you want to partner with. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and as you said, this may be something that eventually develops because, you know, how a lot of their customers want to go to market, that changes. And so they have to figure out something else. Like you said, I know um, 
something that I've heard from from some folks is they want to be available on Instacart. They want to be listed as an option on Instacart, but they really want to have their own thing too, so that you know they still maintain a direct relationship. So basically, if somebody's going to Instacart already, you know they can find you know whatever whatever the grocery brand is on there, but they can also order directly from the the retailer. And I'm wondering if um, you know, for, for companies that can invest the resources. I'm wondering if we don't see, you know, more of that as we move forward. And I don't know, um, I, and I don't know if you'll have the answer to this or, or not, Bill, but how does Instacart treat data? Is it, when a retailer works with Instacart, do they have access to all the same, you know, amount of their data that Instacart does, or, or how does that part of it work? Well, this is one of the rubs that, um, Instacart has been, um, tends to limit, depending on the contract and the arrangement, um, tends to limit uh, detailed access to customers. So um, uh, retailers can learn something about their customers, but there are other constraints in the contract. So for example, and this is just illustrative, it may only exist in some contracts, but the contract might say, we can tell you something about your customers, but you cannot use this data to approach them directly. So then the question becomes, what, what value is that data to me? Um, so I, I, I think that, uh, and there are other areas where they have had a tendency to hold that data closer to their, to their vest. Um, what I, I think is likely to happen here is, if we go back to the original days of Instacart, and I can remember meeting with them early, early. And what they used to do is, um, and they were, they were doing this with uh, uh, Mariano's at the time, uh, or actually Roundy's at the time. They didn't feel they needed, uh, because they had Mariano's, Instacart in Chicago. So what they said was, you know, you can either take scrape our data off our website, or or we may you you can gain access in a variety of different ways. But we're not going to pay you anything. Whereas in Wisconsin, where Instacart was seen as being of competitive value to the Roundies division, uh, they were willing to pay Instacart, and in other words, share gross profit or. Uh, in some way uh, compensate the retailer. So I think what you might expect is more retailers to push back to a situation where we said, we're very happy to have you, uh, have our customers use you, but don't expect us to pay you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we need the incremental business, we want the incremental business and so do you, but we're not gonna pay for it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, at least in the first or second round, the way it's more likely to play out. Has that been a clear enough explanation? Yeah, absolutely. And okay. it, it makes me think to makes me think another, you know, kind of possibility. Um, well, yeah, th there's a million directions this could go, of course, but thinking about all the data that Instacart has amassed from all these different customers, you know, you wonder if that, I mean, it probably already is in, in some way or form that I'm just not aware of, but you know, using that data and that becoming its whole business, you know, and information and consulting, you know, the, those sorts of possibilities for kind of the, the overall grocery landscape, I'm sure is something that's, 
got to be on the radar, I, I would think. I mean, you know, when I think about Google and Facebook and some of these companies where like the, the public face of what it does is one thing, but then all the data that it gathers behind the scenes, you know, every app on the phone, right? Like that same sort of thing is like yep. data that it gathers is can can be a bigger business than what everybody kind of associates with it as the average consumer, you know? I think it's already a big business for them. And it's, it's a good observation on your part. Um, uh, at this stage of the game, uh, I, I think what we're going to see is uh, them. Well, actually, let's just go back in history for a second. The original MyWebGrocer proposition, the very first of the uh, e-commerce platforms, was in large measure profitable because it served as a conduit for manufacturer brands to reach directly through to consumers. So um, Instacart is in precisely the same position, but to your point, on a much larger scale. That's worth a lot of money, particularly in a world when digital advertising and digital communications is a preferred method. So I, I think you're going to see um, that being uh, a cornerstone of Instacart's profitability. The, there's a difference, though, between leveraging that kind of data, which is kind of enabling the connections between two players and analyzing it in a fashion where there's a sort of customer-centric set of results that says, here's what these customers want versus this other set of customers. I, I see that as two completely different uh, sets of analysis. Mm -hmm. I think they've got the first one nailed how much effort or how prepared they are to move into the second, which would be really a requirement if they were to pivot and to go into kind of business on their own. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I'm curious where, what I was thinking about just kind of the, because um, they said they'll be, they'll be piloting going back to, uh, you know, their, their new partnership with Fabric. It sounds like they'll be partnering, you know, working on some of these micro fulfillment centers with some of their customers in the next year or so. Um, are there? What would you say are the kind of the the ideal markets or, or different, you know, areas around the country where this might be an, an easier, quicker setup than other areas, perhaps? Well, let's start really with uh, Fabric, um, who's an has an excellent technology and. I'm not sure whether they would describe themselves this way, but, but they're really where e-commerce is offered as a service. So it's not unusual for them to serve multiple retailers from the same capability in uh, uh, downtown uh, 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 in major cities in Israel, for example, and I suspect in other areas. So they're, they're used to being... Uh, uh, comfortable serving multiple retailers. Now, when, and so let's say there are two different Instacart models with uh, Instacart running the, uh, uh, or being the lead, if you will, in automation. It's either a model where it's dedicated completely to the retailer, or it's sort of online fulfillment as a service where multiple customers can avail themselves of that. Um, if, if they went the first way, that is, uh, they partnered completely with a major retailer, 
made the investment in fulfillment uh, in the uh, automation, it's conceivable that that could work really well because the retailer would have some of that investment taken off their books uh, and they wouldn't necessarily be supporting an enterprise that would be also supporting competition. Mm -hmm. So uh, now the implications for produce will come to in just a moment when, when you're ready. But the other model is if, if the uh, proposition is to provide a service to multiple retailers, then this becomes much more com competitive for uh, the other players. And I think in the same way that many retailers resist being part of uh, 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 Amazon's uh, web services because they just don't want to be part of contributing to something that's competing with them, you probably find some more resistance in that model. So, but we don't know yet which of those two things they're which of those two approaches they're going to take. Yeah, it kind of sounds like everything's on the table at this point, just from the the little we can glean from the uh, the news release. It looks like they're maybe going to experiment with a few different things and kind of see what sticks. Yep, I, I I think that's true. And let me just speak for a moment, since I know you've got a very strong following in produce. I think in many respects. Um, this particular partnership doesn't necessarily have immediate implications for produce, uh, except that it creates kind of a new channel that produce needs to be sure they're part of. So what are, again, two possibilities. Uh, if, if the retailer and uh, Instacart and Fabric are all seen together, then the retailer still has to figure out how to pick and pack and merge the orders together. So uh, that's a separate operation and sometimes a tricky one. Where do you locate that? Um, uh, and so um, a, lot of, a lot of questions in the detail. In the service arrangement, the, I think from the retailer point of view, they run the risk of giving up control over quality, uh, which is obviously an extraordinarily important point for retailers' brands. So um, it's hard for me to see why and how anyone would give up that control of quality because it's just too important. And, uh, and the other one, um, you know, they're going to still have to be in the sort of, how, how do we get the uh, implementation of the orders, the produce done and, and merged? So in that sense, I think it'll take a little while I do know there are a number of people uh, in the grower shipper community who are a little self-conscious about being able, Instacart's marketplace allowing customers to buy their produce any place they want. And in a period when there's a lot of pressure on price, uh, it kind of uh, exposes retailer to more competitive pressure. And, and that's worrisome, I think, for the folks who who are trying to get the retailers to defend a quality position and working hard to make that happen. Mm -hmm. That's a great point because it used to be a little bit more work to compare prices against a bunch of different places nearby. Yeah, they uh, make it pretty easy here. And, uh, uh, and most of us are going to go with a low cost option without really a, a good understanding of what the quality shelf life implications may be. Well, and especially because ordering online, you know, I think 
I think when you when you walk into a, a store and have the experience, that's really what kind of hammers home like, oh yeah, I really want to get it from, you know, the regional chain with 200 stores versus, you know, the, the big discounter with several thousand stores. But if it's coming to your doorstep and your experience is mostly okay, you know, then, then you don't have that distinction as, as much. So that's, that's a great point that that's kind of a, uh, you know, one, one more additional uh, pressure point on, on price for, for retailers with, as we see online grocery grow. And I think it's really um, an important one because in the conversations I'm having, um, you know, this has been a tough year for a lot of uh, produce producers. Uh, the consumption in fruit isn't what it used to be. Why is that occurring? Uh, there's uh, an interest on the part of many retailers in developing private label. So you can feel the sort of influence of price and commoditization coming in, both things that the real quality producers would like to insulate themselves from for understandable reasons. So um, anything that makes it easy to price compare um, makes it harder to control quality, I think has got to be judged as a risk proposition from the supplier point of view. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting you mentioned private label because we actually, um, there was a little kind of produce industry virtual networking event uh, just yesterday. And we were talking, um, there was a director of produce on the call and he mentioned private label. And so I was asking him, you know, are are you wanting to go that direction or, you know, do you prefer having kind of those established produce brands? And he said, well, I like having the produce brands, but, you know, sometimes I get pressure from the higher ups on, Hey, you know, we, we want to go into more private label, you know, so I know those conversations are happening, like you said, in a lot of places and, and it's hard as a supplier to create differentiation if what's on the shelf doesn't have your name on it. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of one of those long-term, you know, things I know people are trying to figure out how to navigate. And that probably qualifies in the $64,000 question, the answer to that. Uh, the outline of the direction for the answer to that question, I, I think, has two elements. One is um, uh, the, the grower shipper, I'm going to use that term, it may not be precisely accurate, but the the person responsible for the product itself and bringing it to market uh, uh, will increasingly, I think, need to understand um, the product attributes or features that their best customers are looking for. So first of all, they are gonna be growing, producing, irrigating, harvesting, and maintaining to satisfy those customers every time. Uh, you know, because they want to maintain that loyalty. I had some uh, plums the other week that were uh, obviously grown with that kind of love and care, and they were fabulous, absolutely fabulous. Now, I, I, they were provided to me. I didn't pay for it, but I definitely would pay a premium for the quality and the consistency of what we saw there. So I, I think on the one hand, you've got the retailer um, – uh, or you've got the grower shipper becoming more of a marketer around attributes versus brand. And mm-hmm. I think over the next two years, <clears throat> that shift from 
brand focus into more of an attribute focus is going to become more evident. The other side of the coin that needs to happen is you have to have a distribution partner that will um, get that product that you've grown and developed with a high attention to quality. You have to have a partner that gets that with that quality maintained all the way to the customer. And, um, and that isn't always the case when the product goes through the display process at the retail store. So who knows exactly whether there are going to be other channels that open up uh, or there are going to be people who are just saying, we're not going to kid around. We're going to take X number of categories that we want to be signature for us, we own, and we're going to take care of them with the temperature and the humidity and the handling and the culling and the display inventory that, that guarantees that our customers get what they want. Um, until we feel that kind of commitment on the part of the retailer, it's going to be hard to get that, you know, really solid partnership. Mm-hmm. I, I think. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, Bill, that you mentioned kind of the, the awareness of the value you, you kind of, it can be hard to establish that with, you know, even retailers trying to establish it with the shopper, right. And like why this brand is better, or why these, you know, specialty varieties are, are worth the extra dollar or worth the extra 50 cents or, or whatever it is. You mentioned those, those plums as an example. And um, it, it made me think um, Ajo Delhaze, you know, came out with an announcement earlier this week and was talking about basically um, different ways to incentivize the, the purchase of healthier products. And so nice. it led to a, a discussion on LinkedIn among produce professionals about like, well, is, you know, is financial incentives for, for people buying produce, like really the right way to go? If it's, if it's a lower price incentive, like, is that really the direction you want to drive people? And I was thinking about it and kind of the example that came to my mind, I thought, I wonder if, because, you know, all, all these places have, have their shopper loyalty data. I thought, I wonder if you could have kind of a graduated scale, you know, where you start with discounts for those households that aren't buying as much fresh produce. And then as you see the habits start to change, you know, you make those discounts a little bit less and a little bit less. And what I think folks, you know, might find is, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm having to spend more on this now than I was, but it's actually worth it. You know, the, the benefits I'm seeing, the, the eating experience, how I feel when I eat more produce, you know, those other things I had a, um, the experience in my own life. My sister-in-law is a personal trainer and she started teaching this, this boot camp class well, you know, the, the first one's free. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go and be supportive, right? Go to the class. Right. And, um, you know, started going for a little bit at, at a lower price. And I found like, my goodness, this, this really does wonders for my mental and physical health. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm willing to pay the full price. I really, you know, it would have been hard for me to, to jump in and, and pay that without the trial and without a little bit of repeated experience. But now that I'm in, I'm in, you know? So I, I wonder if both, you know, um, not the supplier to the retailer as much, but maybe the retailer to the consumer, you know, trying to establish that that trial and, and awareness of the benefits of some of these brands attributes to your point. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how all that develops, I think. Well, I, th- I think you really have pointed out an exciting possibility. Um, what you just described is kind of beyond the trade relations state in many situations. 
But let me just give you a quick example of a company, which I'm, I'm not going to name, but uh, here's what they're uh, anticipating doing with this high quality produce. They're, they are going to be, and they've got tens of thousands of customers, they're going to be providing a small sample of that product to every one of their customers. And then they're going to follow up to see whether that trial, where it resonated, and then begin the process that you're talking about. Because I think the process you are talking about makes huge sense. The question is, you know, how do you get it started? And how do you then build to the crescendo that you described? But th this is a distributor with some unique capabilities. And, you know, they're willing to uh, do the sampling, use their data, isolate the sort of target customer, and then cultivate the business. Um, I don't think that's, I, I think we're likely to see more and more of that exactly how it plays out. You know, we'll have plenty of time to see. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Bill, any, uh, anything you think we're missing or anything else you want to add on Instacart, fabric, uh, produce, <laughs> all the above? Well, I, I think it's, um, I think it's a time when, um, the, I, I think the consumption problems and the sales problems that a lot of produce is experiencing isn't related to price. It's related to quality and it's related to the sort of marketing and promotion or call it merchandising, which is the way retailers do it. Uh, if that's correct, and that's kind of an assessment that I would offer, it's time to start experimenting with different approaches. Um, finding partners who will cooperate, testing how those partnerships work, and finding the things that allow you to do what you described so artfully. To me, that's, you know, we're right at that point where business as usual or being caught in a downdraft is not what you want to do. So that'd be my parting thought. Mm -hmm. Well, since you said merchandising, and that is something that I've, I've been uh, observing rather closely the last few years, I'll ask you just one more to follow up on that, which is what would be, um, you know, what would be your observations on the merchandising opportunities uh, when it comes to, to produce in particular? Well, I, I think the, and, and I say this watching some of the things that Amazon Fresh is going through. Um, I, I think the key merchandising opportunity here is to get the right product in the right quantity in each store and getting and the right product in the right quantity being different depending on the demands of the customers in that store. If we if and when we get to a situation where that kind of alignment with the product offer and the customer demand is in place, uh, I think the growth will go exactly in the right direction. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you again before too long. Thank you for the opportunity. Look forward to it. That is going to do it for today. In case you're new here, the podcast name is Tip of the Iceberg, as we like to say, because this is just a taste of the coverage of 
the wonderful world of fresh produce offered by The Packer and Produce Market Guide. You can check us out on thepacker.com, producemarketguide.com, and of course, all over social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, a few recent episodes that you might want to add to your library. Uh, our editor-in-chief, Tom, spoke recently with Desmond O'Rourke about changes, challenges, and opportunities in the Apple industry. And on another recent episode, we spoke with several leaders at Auburn University about how their students are growing hydroponic produce in shipping containers for the campus dining program. All kinds of fun stuff that we talk about here on the podcast that we cover on the website that we uh, share widely on social media. So please uh, be sure to join us. We really appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time on the tip of the iceberg podcast.